Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Basketball Conference, the ACC Football Podcast. My name is Mike McDaniel. We have a good one for you today, previewing the Clemson Tigers with Will Qualkenbush, 105.5 The Roar Clemson Radio Network, recurring guest of the podcast. Will always has great information for us pertaining to the Clemson football program. It's a really interesting year coming up here for Clemson. Dabo Swinney has to replace both coordinators in Tony Elliott and Brent Venables. Clemson is coming off of arguably their worst season in about a decade, going 10-3 and three last year. Seems weird to say, but yeah, their, their worst season in a decade. And a lot of questions heading into the season regarding the offense. How is DJU going to evolve? Does Clemson have enough playmakers on the outside? Something we've never really questioned. And can Clemson's defense step up and be the elite unit that a lot of people expect them to be? And can Clemson not only return to the driver's seat of the ACC, but can they be a serious college football playoff contender once again? We'll get into all that with Will, but first, Joey's going to give his take on Clemson. I think you guys know where this is going if you've been listening to us this summer. Joey is a little pessimistic about the chances of Clemson being a college football playoff contender this year, but I won't spoil it too much. Here's Joey, followed by my interview with Will Hawkenbush. I've already discussed on the podcast a couple of times this offseason that I am ready to go out on a limb here and say that Clemson's best days under Dabo Swinney are behind them. I am I'm sticking to that opinion. I I'm there's a couple of things I think that I look at that have ref, you know, have resulted in Clemson being what they were over the last decade. Number one is an incredible string of quarterbacks, and really it was just two of them. It was Deshaun Watson and then Trevor Lawrence, um, two guys that were – I've, I've brought up the exercise before. If you start naming the best quarterbacks in college football of the last eight, nine years, how many of them would you have to name before you got to Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence? And I, I don't think you would even finish counting on both both hands, really. Um, so that, that's a pretty tough thing to replicate going forward, number one. Number two, the two kind of real big things I think that Dabo Swinney has done that really put this program over the top and got it to where it is was, number one, hiring Chad Morris to run the offense a number of years ago, and number two, hiring uh, Brent Venables to run the defense a number of years ago. He brought in two guys from the outside who revolutionized both sides of the ball that when put in tandem with some of the recruiting that they were doing really was what put this Clemson program into the upper echelon of college football and made them the dominant force in the ACC that they have become. Well, my problem is now that so much of that brain trust that has left has been replaced by internal hires. It is uh, guys being promoted from within rather than bringing in the outside ideas that were what, you know, it was basically replicating what 
created this program to begin with. So I am I am not high on the hires that he has made to replace uh, Tony Elliott and to some degree Jeff Scott, as well as certainly Brent Venables, uh, one of the two or three best defensive coordinators in football at, at the very least, if not the best. Um, he promoted a bunch of assistants, and I, I just don't expect that that is going to yield the same level of results. If those were really, truly high-end coordinator potential guys, in my mind, wouldn't they have gotten hired up somewhere else? And if DJ Uyunglele, Big Cinco, really were a generational quarterback, wouldn't he look kind of like Deshaun Watson or Trevor Lawrence did as freshmen? instead of what he did last year, which was oftentimes he was inaccurate, he was uncomfortable, uh, he just didn't understand what was going on. And so I, I think this defense is going to have a ton of talent at the end of the day, and that's going to be plenty that it's going to be hard to screw up in so many ways. I mean, up front in particular, there's almost nobody in college football that's going to be able to block these guys. And so moving the ball on them is going to be an, a real issue as long as there is some health uh, there. There isn't any major injury kind of patterns. I, but without that, I mean, they're, they're going to be pretty nasty on defense. The problem becomes on offense where maybe maybe Big Cinco puts it together and we see a little bit more of what he looked like in 2020 in 2022. Uh, maybe the offensive line kind of starts to gel a little bit, maybe. Maybe the receivers start to get open. Maybe your new offensive coordinators are able to you know design schemes and, and call plays a little bit more effectively to move the ball. I, that's a lot of maybes. That's a lot of maybes. And so I, I have a, a real issue with Clemson. I, I think they are coming back down to earth a little bit. I'm not saying they're going to go 6-6. Six and six. I do think they might go about 10-2, and two, though. Um, I, I think there are losses to be had on this schedule. They lost to NC State last year. They get them at home this year. But NC State, I think, very good. Uh, I think could give them a, a run for their money and, and make that a full four-quarter game at the very least. Uh, follow that up with a road trip to Boston College for the homecoming game and the red bandana game and, and a week before they then travel to Tallahassee. Like, I think that's an incredibly dangerous spot for Clemson in early October. And then in November, they, they make a road trip to South Bend to play at Notre Dame. That is a very losable game. So I think there's a few tough games on the schedule, and that's assuming that they don't screw up anywhere else. Um, they only beat Georgia Tech last year by six points, and, and I'm not saying that that's going to happen. There's a reason that Clemson is a three-touchdown favorite going into that game, but uh, I, yeah, we'll find out this year how much do we trust Clemson. So I, I think they go about 10-2. and two. I, I think that they are probably up there. You know, It'll be between them and NC State to win the Atlantic Division for the final time. Um, I think there's a very good chance that they play for the ACC championship game. They might even win the ACC championship. That's, you know, I think that's fair, but I do not think that Clemson is a legitimate playoff contender until I see something that tells me otherwise between this coaching staff and, you know, what's going on on offense. Um, I, I just, I don't have a lot of reason for believing that this team is going to go just absolutely run the table for now. So give me 10 and two on Clemson. I think they'll be very good, but not as good as they have been. And uh, we'll see if that's good enough for the uh, the fan base before they uh, – maybe they have to make some changes in, in, in the future years. But we'll see. That's my take. I'm going on a limb. I'm calling it now. Feel free to uh, come make fun of me at a later date. Go Tigers. Let's take a quick break to remind you about Section103.com. It is the Internet's premier place for buying all sorts of great officially licensed Georgia Tech apparel. They have got all sorts of great T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies – 
Uh, they've got stickers now. They've got something for the whole family, men, women, children, everything. Go check them out. Once again, it's section103.com. You're looking for shirts that are in the official tech gold. You're looking for shirts with the ATL logo on them. You're looking for other officially licensed things. Those things are hard to find in a lot of places for some reason. I don't know why. You can find them all on section103.com. Again, go, go there, check them out. Use promo code GOACC for 10% off your first order. And, and again, they have some stickers that have just come out. Those, those are really cool. Everything is really high quality that I've gotten from them. Uh, I've gotten some of the performance shirts. I've got one of the hoodies. Um, everything I've got there is, is great, and it really goes great on a Saturday afternoon supporting the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets at Bobby Dodd Stadium or anywhere else. You're in the Thriller Dome. You're at uh, McCamish Stadium. You're at uh, the Rusty Sea. You are going to a volleyball game. You need something to support Georgia Tech. Go to section103.com. They have great products. They are all officially licensed. Got those official word marks, the official colors, everything. Everything you could ask for, you can go find it all there. Once again, use promo code GOACC for 10% off your first order when you do go. Appreciate Steven and the gang for their partnership with Basketball Conference. We look forward to another great football season partnering with them. And now let's get back to it. All right. You know, it's college football season when I'm sitting on my balcony and I'm talking college football and specifically Clemson football with William Falkenbush. Uh, Will, Clemson went 10 and 3 last year. It was their basically their worst season in a decade, which is saying a lot. But this is a really, really talented team returning and one of the more intriguing teams, I think, in all of college football, as usual. So, first of all, how are you? What's going on? I'm good. I'm glad we're both doing this outside today. Um, yes. It's a beautiful day in uh, upstate South Carolina, except for, I think, the humidity is 112%. Other than that, I uh, can't complain one bit. Uh, how are you, Mike? How's the offseason been? And then we'll, you know, we'll get into Clemson, but I got I to gotta make sure you're doing okay. I'm good. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Um, my wife and I had our first child about six weeks ago. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So you are the uh, second podcast guest I've had on since I've returned from my uh, paternity leave. And I've been making jokes that, you know, I have this podcast. And I haven't informed our HR, which I think is Joey, that <laughs> I've been on paternity leave, but I'm returning from. So uh, you know, I just want to make that known here with each of my podcast guests that, that I am back. And the reason why it's just me today, Will, is because Joey and his wife, they're also expecting in like three weeks. So we didn't time this right at all. Um, <laughs> we're basically one one after another going totally solo um, on our podcast this summer, but we do what we can. Everything good on your end? Yeah, man, that's good. Uh, I'm glad you guys timed it out so that maybe both of you will be uh, post-labor and post-delivery by the time the season starts. So, you know, I understand on this end, you guys are wearing it a little bit, but on the back end, that's going to be nice. That's right. Yeah. Once we get into the season, um, we're hoping by late September, early October, we'll both be kind of back in the saddle, so to speak. Um, well, you're on 1055 The Roar. I, I didn't mention that off the top, but if you don't know, if you don't listen to Will's radio show, make sure to go check that out. Um, we've had Will on several times, friend of the podcast. He does play-by-play as well for Clemson. Um, so go check all of his stuff out. Am I missing anything off the top? No, that's good. And, um, you know, I didn't answer your original question or your original thought, which is, you know, Clemson had 10 wins last year and, um, you know, it was their worst season in recent memory. And all they did was go 10 and three with uh, a loss to the national champion on a neutral site by a touchdown. 
Yeah. Uh, they lost to the Coastal Division champion and the Conference champion by double digits on the road. A pick six was uh, pretty important there. And then they lost to what, in my opinion, was the best team in their division and a team that would have won 10 games had UCLA not uh, – I mean, I don't want to get too controversial here, but they basically played the COVID card. They did everything yeah. but play the game yep. and then decided the last day, oh, sorry, we, we don't have COVID. So, or uh, we, we can't play because we have COVID. So right. that, that was, that was odd. Um, but th those, those were the three losses. So when you, when you take it like that, I mean, look on the other side of things, they could have missed a bowl game because they had a right. bunch of one score games. And so it's made for an intriguing off season here because the conversations that we've been having on 105.5 The Roar, the flagship station for Clemson, where I'm broadcasting every day. And some of the conversations I'm having with people in the community are less of, you know, well, how many snaps the third string center going to get this year? And, you know, do we have three punters? And, you know, all that kind of stuff. Those are the questions I normally would field. Um, you know, who's going to win the, you know, are they going to win the Heisman or are they just going to kind of win the Heisman? Like, those are the kind of things that normally people are asking me. Now uh, it's more like, can they fix what's broken? Uh, is the offense in need of an overhaul? Should they have gone outside for the hire? Is DJ the guy? When is DJ going to lose his job? Essentially, the questions you're going to ask me are ones that I feel that every single day here, and they're very different for the recent Clemson context, but they're not unfamiliar to other fan bases around the country. Basically, last year turned Clemson into what I would consider to be a normal fan base in terms of what the offseason sounds like. Normal fan base for sure. Um, how about in terms of like Clemson in the upper echelon of college football? I mean, they're still clearly there, but are they in the Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia realm still? You know, obviously had the loss in the bowl game in Ohio State a couple of years ago. Um, then last year, you know, you kind of take a step back, you know, once once Trevor Lawrence leaves and you know, DJU steps in and doesn't perform to the level that I think a lot of people expected. There was a lot of reasons for that too, right? Um, I DJ could have played better, but on top of that, there were a lot of other things at work on the offensive side of the football that made his job a bit more difficult than I think a lot of us were anticipating. So in terms of where Clemson should be viewed in terms of the upper, upper tier of the sport, do you believe as somebody who covers them on a day-to-day -day basis that they're still there? despite all the turnover and despite the questions of quarterback and just in general, the questions about the offense kind of entering the season. Well, uh, before I say what I think, I think it's important to note that the coaches think so, um, or at the very least, the coaches think that Clemson is the best of the rest. Uh, when you consider that Alabama, Ohio state, Georgia, and Clemson were the top four. Um, it's interesting that I, I felt like the coaches were a little too familiar. Like they had Oklahoma as the top ranked team in the big 12. I didn't love that. Uh, they, they had some interesting things going on that essentially were like, you know, if, if you've been good for 10 years, you're going to be good this year. And so it was a little more of a conventional poll than, than maybe I would like based on what we know about certain programs and what we know about certain teams. I think that's what gets you in trouble. But it, it, it's interesting that among those choices was Clemson that finished the year, what, low teens? I don't know exactly what, 16, 17, 18, 19, somewhere around in there. Uh, the Clemson's right back up to four. Now, you've seen some Utah in there from some people. Um, you've seen some Texas A&M in there from some people. You've seen different – you've seen NC State as the, the, you know, pick to win the Atlantic Division by some folks. 
But the reality is the vast majority of ACC voters in a conference where you got five teams ranked in the preseason top 25 and you got a couple more that, that garnered some significant support, uh, people overwhelmingly thought Clemson was the best team in the ACC. And if Clemson's going to be that good, then you're going to be in the playoff conversation. So I'll start by saying that. Around the country, you're seeing people believe that Clemson is going to bounce back. And even the people who don't think Clemson is going to bounce back all the way assume that Clemson is going to bounce back some and that those questions are really isolated. They're not really program-wide questions, at least for the moment. They're more isolated questions about Clemson. Um, now, as far as what I think, I think people are making too much of what happened last year for Clemson, and I think they're making too much of some other things that are going in other teams' favors. For instance, I do think, and I, you know – Far be it for me to be the Clemson guy to come on your podcast and play the victim. Okay, I'm not I'm not going to do that. But it is interesting that there appear to be some voices who have been, it would appear, searching for a reason or an avenue to knock Clemson down a peg. All they needed was one poor year from Clemson to knock them down a peg. Um, I, you know, looking at some coach ranking lists, it's interesting to me that uh, Kirby Smart, has been coaching about half the time as Dabo Sweeney. He's got half the national championships. He's got half the national championship appearances. He's got significantly fewer division and conference championships than Dabo Sweeney. There's one year where Kirby Smart's team is better than Dabo Sweeney's team. Uh, Kirby Smart is 1-0 and against Dabo's team, and Dabo's team is the only one that pushed him last year uh, before Alabama in the SEC championship game. And lo and behold, you see people saying, well, Kirby Smart's the second-best team, and we know because we saw him that one time. It's like, well, have you seen the first, you know, dozen years of Dabo's tenure? Does last, is last year the only one that counts? And then you look at, you know, best programs of the decade. I saw that list the other day. And, I, you know, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on individual people, but there's the, all these this anecdotal evidence. They're like, well, Ohio State's been the best program, uh, you know, uh, a better program than Clemson. Well, Clemson have one bad year, and they've beaten the brakes off Ohio State all but one time they played in the last 10 years. Uh, you know, Ohio State's put more guys in the league, but that should mean they've had better success against Clemson. It's put significantly fewer guys in the league and has recruited at not a high level and hasn't been winning 10 games since I was born, like Ohio State, like it's your birthright. So, like, I just I, – I, I see that conversation around the country that it felt like people were putting Clemson and Dabo up there begrudgingly even though they didn't want to and they, were, they weren't feeling it. And so all it took was a little bit of evidence of slip for them to be like, oh, well, you know, we got no choice. We got to put Kirby up there. Oh, we got to put Ohio State up there. We got to put George up there. We got to put Ryan Day up there. When there's evidence, long-term evidence, to the contrary. And so I think for, for those people, this is going to be an important year to try to get Clemson back in the good graces of a lot of folks who, again, are just looking for any amount of evidence to knock what Dabo's done, to knock what Clemson's built. And uh, I think they're going to get back there because I think last year was a historically inept offense with a historic run of bad luck regarding injuries. It should note that they it followed a, um, a period of historically good luck regarding, uh, regarding injuries for about five or six years. And so you're talking about chickens coming home to roost all at one time when you're down to two scholarship receivers for the last month plus of the season, which by the way, uh, Clemson played his best ball the last month plus of the season with two scholarship receivers available. Um, you know, when, when you're looking at that, you're looking at Brian Brzee missing significant time, James Skalski missing significant time, major injuries up front on the offensive line. 
You had a left guard starter in Marcus Tate that told us after the Georgia game he didn't know that he could compete against Georgia until the second series. Like, you're kidding me, right? You're, you're starting a true freshman against Georgia that is scared, uh, you know, shaken in his boots the first series of downs offensively. And then you got an offense that wasn't on the same page with each other. DJ probably wishes he had the, the offseason back from last year. So there were just so many things that went wrong yet last year that just are not going to go wrong again because nobody sees things go that wrong again, especially when you have a track record of not seeing that much stuff go wrong. So I think the, the Clemson conversation and being in the top four is legitimate. I would have them in the top four today. I don't think they're in the first tier of teams. Um, I think there's one team in the first tier of teams, and that's Alabama. But I would put Clemson – I would have no issue putting Clemson in the Georgia tier, the Ohio State tier, the Utah tier, if you want to put a team that hasn't been in the playoff yet in there. To me, that comprises the second tier of programs in the country going to 2022. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Um, I, I'm with you, actually, on all that. I, I think the demise of Clemson is greatly exaggerated. I think the, the loss of two coordinators coupled with the fact that Clemson took a half step back in terms of kind of where they've been over the last five or six years I think lends credence to some people saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, here comes Clemson, like back to normalcy. And I'm just not totally convinced that's the case. I look at the way they've recruited. I look at the talent still on the roster. I look at the depth of talent right up and down the roster. I just don't I don't see the giant step back by Clemson standards on a year to year basis. Now, the quarterback play continues to struggle. If the offense looks like they did a year ago, if they run into that string of injuries like they did last year, maybe we're having a different conversation. Maybe, you know, Clemson, it took all that, by the way, for Clemson to only win 10 games, only win 10, right? It took all of that historically bad injury luck and, you know, historically bad quarterback play in terms of Dabo Sweeney coach teams, right? Like we haven't seen a quarterback really struggle like that under Dabo um, during his run at Clemson. It's been a while, right? And I don't even put Kelly Bryant in that conversation. I, I know Kelly Bryant, you know, lost his job to, to a freshman in Trevor Lawrence, but I think we all knew, you know, Kelly Bryant's limitations and what those were. But at the same time, we knew that he was a veteran. He wasn't going to look lost on the field. And he didn't, right? He played fine. There was just another level that Clemson's offense could get to with Lawrence, and that's why Dabo made that move midseason. Now, looking at this year's team, let, let's start with – the coordinator changes, right? Actually, you know what? Let, let's take a step back. Let's talk. Let's talk Dabo's approach to a transfer portal. Let's talk like bigger picture first. Dabo's approach to a transfer portal historically has been, you know, I don't really, you know, I want to focus on high school recruits, getting guys, keeping them in the program, culture, 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 which I totally understand. Can't really knock him for it because it's worked, right? It's worked historically. He's won multiple national championships doing that. But with the state of college football right now, with NIL, and it's it's basically college football free agency, right, until further notice, do you believe that Dabo needs to change his approach to the transfer portal in terms of going out and getting more guys, bringing them into the program? And also, by that same token, he hasn't had a ton of guys leave. Like, I want to make that clear, too. Like, he's kept a lot of guys. There, there's still the retention part of it that Dabo's made you know, so clear and so important that I think he's done a pretty good job of still, despite, you know, the, the struggles that the team had last year. Yeah, I think it's a nuanced answer to your question because I think 
some things have to be true in order for Dabo to actually change his stance on the portal. The first thing is Dabo would have to modify. I'm not going to say change, but I would say modify his approach to recruiting. We've seen some of that this year where for the first time uh, he allowed summer official visits. He's kind of been of the opinion in the past official visits should be reserved for fall. You can have people in for spring, but summer is family time and camp time. Um, with so many high-profile prospects trying to decide before their senior years, uh, they made that change, and that has borne tremendous fruit, where you had a class that was essentially stagnant, who actually did lose a commit with Ray Ray Joseph, who um, was a four-star from Miami, who's now uh, committed to, my, to, uh, to Miami to go play. Uh, but they got a ton of residual benefit from that change. So that's just an example. I think there are people who kick and scream about Dabo's approach to things, who don't understand the ways in which Dabo actually has moved sort of in silence or maybe, you know, with people not paying attention to try to address some of those things. Clemson is building, I don't know what the exact square footage is, but it's a, it's a pretty massive expansion of their facility right now devoted to NIL, despite the fact that there's, they just hired somebody to run their NIL program. They have as good an NIL in-house program as you can by rule in the country. But there's this idea that Dabo is just so anti-NIL and so anti-players this and players that. Some of that is true. Some, some of those criticisms are legitimate because of what he said. Some of that is false. And I think you're, you're starting to see that there are some bad faith actors out there who just like to get talking points and who see Dabo as a punching bag. And, Negative recruiting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's it. That really is it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's coaches from other schools, it's media members, et cetera who, um, you know, like to tell half stories or, you know, have a hard time changing the trajectory of their uh, narratives. And so I, I do want to say that up front, that Dabo has always said, we will address a portal in our own way. Now, I would argue this would have been the offseason to do that. And they tried. I, I would call it a half-hearted attempt at the portal. Not necessarily so they could say, see, we tried. There, you happy? Not really like that. They brought in Hunter Johnson to their quarterback room. He essentially was going to be what Zeb Nolan was for South Carolina last year, very famously around here. We know the story of Zeb, where Zeb came in, and he was going to be a GA from Iowa State, and then they were low on numbers, so we ended up having to play half the year. Um, so, you know, Hunter Johnson's kind of like that. Like, he's showing up kind of like a GA, but he's also running through drills in case they need uh, an emergency third quarterback type of situation. He wants to get into coaching. And so it's a good on-ramp for him to do that. That's not really what people mean when they, meet, when they talk about going in the portal. Um, they looked at a couple of offensive linemen, but they really wanted somebody who would be a one-year stopgap, like a, a guy who had started before, who maybe was a grad transfer. Because what they, what they want to use the portal for is essentially like, if you're using an NFL example, like one-year free agency contracts, where we don't have guys ready yet, but we will. And so, again, you're talking about sort of um, Dabo believing in his culture. He still wants to believe in his culture and incorporate the portal into that. What I would say, though, is you mentioned, you know, the retention rate. They did have uh, everybody leave after the spring or everybody stay after the spring. Nobody left. But they had, I believe it was nine defections uh, during last season. Some of that was out recruiting what I would consider to be an underperforming 2019 class, which is the last time Clemson signed a big recruiting class they've had all kinds of issues with that class coming to fruition and um and and some of the major players in that class have got to put up or shut up this year and some some of those major players have already left 
uh, because they've been recruited over in smaller classes, uh, you know, more recently. So you had some of that. And then you had three members of what was already going to be a small recruiting class uh, decommit and commit elsewhere to major programs when Brent Venables left. And it's fair to note three things about that. Number one, Venables was the guy at the forefront of their uh, uh, recruiting processes. Two, they were all three national prospects where a couple of them were not from Clemson's uh, traditional geographic regions. And so there wasn't that sort of tied to the area. And three, they all ended up at IMG Academy where they very famously will let committed prospects talk to other staffs, et cetera. So it was more difficult for Clemson to put out fires when, you know, everything seemed to be burning around them in December where Venables leaves and Elliott leaves and Wes Goodwin is hired and Brandon Streeter's hired. And there's nobody coming from, you know, from outside. There's no splashy hire. And so that spooks some recruits. It spooks some current players who ended up uh, st sticking around. We know that. So I, I do think that with nine transfers in the season, with three decommits from the class, what ended up happening because Clemson wasn't in the portal is that they, they ended up settling for what I would consider to be depth guys, where they're either going to be, you know, bottom of the barrel, you know, 70 to 85 or 65 to 85 scholarship guys, um, or they're going to transfer and play somewhere smaller. Now, the reason I bring that up is because I don't think Clemson's equipped to go to the portal the way that makes sense because they also don't offer a lot of guys. And that, that has been a selling point for Clemson in the past. The Clemson offer means a lot. The two programs that are stingiest with offers over the last decade have been Stanford and Clemson. And Stanford's not been big in the portal either, I think for academic reasons as well. But to me, the way it makes sense to go in the portal, we've seen this with Clemson uh, men's and women's basketball. When you have relationships in recruiting and maybe you finish second for a guy, that's who you go after if you're, you're trying not to treat it like just – you know, carte blanche, free agency, we're just bringing whatever. It makes sense to go back to relationships with guys that you've already gotten, uh, you know, far down the road with and just came up a little bit short in recruiting. Clemson doesn't have a lot of those stories. The guys that they're going after are not in the portal. And because they don't offer, you know, they offer half the guys that Alabama does or half the guys that Georgia does or half the guys LSU does or, you know, any of the other powers in the country, going to the portal and saying, hey, fill out this questionnaire so we can get to know you a little better. When you're trying to make snap decisions in the portal, that doesn't go well. It helps to have existing relationships. So my thing is Clemson will get in the portal if it starts being a little bit more liberal with how it doles out offers in the recruiting process so that there are more of those relationships you can go back to when guys do get in the portal. I know that's a long way to answer your question. There were a lot of parts there, but to me – it's not as simple as, well, just turn your attention to the portal and go offer the top 20 guys and just see what happens, you know, not having that kind of process. That's not how Clemson's built. But they can incrementally change some things along the way, I think, to make it more of a possibility to do that in the future if those types of seasons arise where you have, you know, a dozen guys you were counting on being there that all of a sudden aren't. Tweak the relationships on the front end for success yeah. in the back end. That, that makes total sense. And, you know, I, I think that's – that's a pretty good segue actually to the coaching staff itself, because like we mentioned, Dabo has been historically all about relationships and culture and guys that he's brought in and building them up. And I understand that because what a lot of people I think neglect to realize is that the reason why Dabo is in the position that he's in is because someone else gave him a chance right on their staff. 
and he kind of just was handed the reins as the interim coach and the rest is history. I don't think, you know, you go away from your roots that often unless you have to. And so when you lose two major coordinators, right, I know Jeff Scott left a few years ago, but when you lose kind of the, the second head to that monster offensively, right, in Tony Elliott, and you lose Brent Venables to Oklahoma, for Dabo to then promote from within, not too surprising to me. From an outside perspective, you know, I think that's another area where people are looking at it and saying, you know what, why didn't Dabo go and try to get the best coordinator available on the market that, you know, maybe either was at another school or just recently left, you know, or, or was let go by a school that has a really good track record. You know, why didn't he do that? Why did he kind of go back to the well internally? And my thing is it had to be all about culture, right? So what is it about, um, about Streeter and Goodwin and bringing them in and having them just kind of have just added roles to the table what are the risks involved with that from, from your, from your standpoint, you know, being around the program, kind of understanding the inner workings of it. What are the risks there? You know, are they, you know, are they well-founded? I mean, I, there are a lot of people looking at it saying they should have gone out and hired somebody else, right. That, that wasn't internal to kind of help their woes because they had like one down year. Like, do you subscribe to that method of thinking, or do you think Dabo made the right decision to promote from within for these two major coordinator positions? Well, I mean, time will tell, right? I mean, um, I, I would argue that there's pros and cons both ways. Um, I think it's important to know Dabo's background. You know, he started – I don't know exactly what year he started coaching, but he was a – you know, he won a national championship uh, as a, as a walk-on receiver with Gene Stallings in Alabama, started as a GA there, and has coached all his life since then at literally two places. He was at Alabama – and the staff got fired, and he got hired by Tommy Bowden at Clemson, where, by the way, he coached uh, Tony Elliott as the receivers coach, which, you know, you're, we're talking about longstanding relationships. That's where those come from. Uh, Tyler Grisham, another guy he promoted from within, um, was, was a guy that he coached and has developed a long-term relationship with. So I, I, I think, uh, to your point, not many people were surprised. Um, I think there were folks who were hopeful or who maybe had assumed that – Dabo had elevated Clemson to the point that you don't have to do that. I mean, to, to my way of thinking, you know, from a program standpoint, let's say Dabo leaves. In 2008, when Tommy Baum was let go midseason and Dabo became the interim coach, to me, Clemson was not, quote-unquote, too big to go and hire the interim coach. There were a couple of head coaches that were, um, that were in the mix there, like Troy Calhoun and, and guys like that. Um, Brent Venables, uh, ironically, was one of the candidates that um, that Terry Down Phillips talked to at the time. But it's not like Clemson turned down a bunch of high-profile rock star head coaching candidates when they hired Dabo. This is a program now, though, that will. And so whenever Dabo moves on, there might be a succession plan. But if there's not, they're going to have their pick of the litter. They're going to be able to hire just about whoever they want. And there's this idea that you know, you can, you can do certain things when you're sort of below the radar, but then when you get to a certain point, you need to start acting like it. You know, the Yankees uh, need to have a payroll at 250 or $300 million. You don't need to have a payroll like the Rays because you can, right? You don't need to operate, uh, you know, tying your own hands behind your back. I think there were folks that assumed that Dabo went outside for the Brent Venables hire. He went outside for the Chad Morris hire. And with these two hires, Venables, particularly after the three decommits, Venables, obviously, it, it was apparent to people, 
he was the face of the Clemson defense. Dabo was the face of the program, there's no doubt. But there was a lot tied in Brent Venable's personality and his influence on the program and on the defense. Uh, you know, when, when Chad Morris was let go, I would argue that the Tony Elliott, Jeff Scott version was an upgrade. There was certainly in the last couple of years that there, it's been uh, talked about here and I'm discussed nationally, I'm sure, that it was in need of a little bit of a refresher. And so people thought maybe this is an idea like 2010 when Clemson really underperformed offensively and went and got Chad Morris. Um, instead, they promoted from within. And there's the idea that if, you, if you're Dabo and you're looking at Wes Goodwin, a guy that has coached with the Arizona Cardinals, that has had a bunch of opportunities to join NFL and college staffs. Uh, he's called Wes Lecek by players and people in the building because he's a mad scientist on defense. You saw what he did with preparation on the defense uh, with, the, uh, with, with the bowl game against Iowa State, a team that was missing some guys, but still potent offense, and uh, he held them down. Um, and, and Clemson's offense wasn't worth a sack of salt in that game either. So it, he had to, um, you know, he had to to give him a chance to win that game. He's going to be fine. I had issues maybe with him because he hadn't been on the recruiting trail. Um, but he recruited a lot of guys who would have left if he hadn't built relationships with them. Um, there, there are a bunch of high-profile guys in this, on this defense that whether just for a moment or seriously consider jumping in the portal when Brent Venables left and Dabo Swinney and Wes Goodwin were able to talk them off the ledge. Wes is going to be fine. He's done a good job on the trail, like I said. I think people are going to like the way he's sort of modifying and changing some things defensively. We've already heard that he's a little more relatable to the young guys in terms of explaining the defense. We know that Brent Venable's defense was complicated, and Wes's defense is going to be maybe a tad simpler. But Keith McGuire had a quote at practice the other day, maybe yesterday or two days ago, where um, – he talked about how uh, Wes Goodwin explains things in more layman's terms as opposed to football terms like Brent Venable. So you're already seeing some, some benefit there with Wes, who is a much different personality in front of the microphone, which is to say you're not going to be beating down his door calling for interviews like Brent Venables, who you know really did command the room in a press conference situation. But he, he does have a good personality uh, in his room with his defensive players and with his linebackers. With Brandon Streeter, I think there are people who assume that it's going to be a continuation of the same. Wrong. Uh, two things happen with that. One, you bring in a guy with previous offensive coordinator experience. Before he became the quarterback's coach at Clemson prior to the 2014 bowl game, where, by the way, he rung more out of Cole Stout in that one game than Chad Morris did in a year and a half, which is amazing to me. Um, I, You know, Streeter Man, that's a, was – Cole Stout's a throwback. Good God. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it was unbelievable the way he played. I think they beat Oklahoma forty to six um, in that uh, in that bowl game back in twenty fourteen when Deshaun Watson had surgery and it was Cole Stout's last hurrah. Uh, it was uh, if you're a Bible person, it was like his Samson moment where he pushed down the pillars and everything collapsed. I mean, you know, I'm not saying he he tried to you know you know wipe out a whole army or anything like that, but I mean that was kind of it. Like if you give me one more chance, I'm gonna go out in a blaze of glory, like the you know Davy Crockett and the Alamo or something. Um, but, but Streeter was offensive coordinator at Richmond and had good offenses. And he, he's going to be different than Tony Elliott. Tony Elliott had an engineering degree from Clemson. He worked at Michelin before he got into coaching. He is meticulous and thoughtful, and his bent was, let's just wait a second, get as much information as we possibly can, and then snap the ball. Brandon Streeter is going to play a little faster. I think that tempo that Clemson was known for with Chad Morris, it went away when Jeff – I think Jeff Scott was more – pushing the envelope there 
And when Tony Elliott ran the ship by himself, it was just real methodical. Um, it, it allowed the defense to get set a little bit, and it became a little more predictable, less motion, uh, you know, fewer of those things because Tony Elliott was, was very analytical, and he, that's going to help him as a head coach. But it didn't necessarily bode well for DJ Uyungle in this offense last year. Streeter's going to be good for that. The other thing is Kyle Richardson is now the tight ends coach. Uh, he was a prolific um, high school coach here in South Carolina at Northwestern High School. He coached Mason Rudolph, who was at Oklahoma State. Um, he coached another kid that went up to Tennessee, I believe, and, and was a, a Gatorade player of the year there. They ran Air Raid before Air Raid was cool, like in the, you know, before Michael Crabtree was catching passes for Texas Tech. Uh, they were running Air Raid at Northwestern, and we've already seen that there are going to be different elements of crossers and route combinations that are, are more common in Air Raid schemes that are going to come to the Clemson offense. There's going to be more under center, more traditional back to the line of scrimmage play action. We think that's probably going to help uh, DJ a little bit. So I think there's this idea that Dabo is going with more of the same and he's doubling down. And while that's true from a cultural sense, I think people will be surprised at how, if you really pay attention, how different this offense looks in terms of tempo, in terms of matchups, in terms of what they do at the line of scrimmage and how quickly they go from time to time. And then defensively, how many linebackers rotate, what types of linebackers you see, what types of coverages you see. Uh, Wes Goodwin's got the benefit of the best defensive line known to God or man. Uh, they, their defensive line is unbelievable, and their second-string defensive line could start in 100 uh, places in the country, all of them. So Wes certainly has some good tools at his disposal, but I just I, I understand the criticism. I think most people assume that Dabo would go outside to some degree, but a lot of that is overblown. And, oh, by the way, he did go outside to bring in a former Clemson guy, Nick Eason, who all he's done since he got here is recruit his tail off and get a bunch of top 50, top 100 players in this recruiting class. And, uh, oh, by the way, he's also working with both tackles and ends from a technical standpoint right now. He's technically the tackles coach, but he's been a jolt of energy to the staff. So Dabo will go get somebody from the outside if he feels like he needs to. I, I, I really believe that a lot of this criticism will subside if they don't get beset with injuries, because I think there, there will be enough difference that people will notice. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. And like defensively, I mean, you look at what Wes has to work with. And I mean, if this isn't the best defensive line in the country, it's top three or four. I mean, they're going to run eight, nine guys deep, and there's not going to really be much of a drop off. This is a really talented front. It's a talented defense as a whole, Will. I mean, this is going to be one of the top units of the entire sport. I think it's definitely going to be the best defense in the ACC. Yeah, you know what? I agree in terms of talent. Now, I don't want to sit here and say that NC State returning 10 starters, including right. two linebackers that are all confident. Good defense. Or, yeah, very uh, good defense. Pittsburgh, who's got Cansey and Baldonado and Dennis. Like, those guys are legit. Um, BC secondary is elite. So, like, you can nitpick and say, I think Clemson's got the best defensive line. I think NC State's got the best uh, linebackers. And I, maybe Boston College has the best secondary. But in terms of talent, I think it's Clemson, and it's not close. Um, to your point, I mean, you've got three guys who are going to be NFL uh, caliber guys at defensive end at least um, in the rotation this year with Xavier Thomas and K.J. Henry, who both decided to return to school, could have gone pro. Uh, K.J. Henry said, in fact, when we talked to him a few weeks ago, that his ideas were, I'm going to uh, stay at Clemson, or I'm going to transfer. He said, I'm not ready to go pro yet. So he's got an extra year that he can use. Um, so 
those three guys, and then Miles Murphy, who's probably going to be a first-round pick and is a stud and very quietly had a, an exceptional offensive – or excuse me, statistical year last year on the defensive side. And then a defensive tackle, you have three potential day one draft picks, I believe, in Brian Brzee and Tyler Davis and Ruka Rororo. Now, if I were handicapping chances in the NFL draft, I would say Brzee, if he stays healthy, which he hasn't in two years at Clemson, missed a lot of time last year. Uh, starting with the Georgia game, he just had injuries on injuries. Um, Davis, probably a day two guy. And Aurora probably a day two guy, but all three of those guys can flat out play to the point that they had a, a second string defensive tackle that requires surgery. He's probably not going to miss a game, but Trey Williams is his name. He played hurt a lot last year. He's going through some injuries and basically it didn't blip on the radar screen because they have guys at defensive tackle that are top hundred recruits, former four stars and five stars, Peyton Page, Demonte Capehart, an older developmental guy like E.T. Rubin who's able to step up in the defensive tackle uh, in the defensive tackle rotation. They're, lo they're loaded for bear. And if injuries strike like they did last year, I don't see a whole lot of drop off, even if you lose some first round picks, which is unbelievable at linebacker. This is where I think the biggest difference is Brent Venables, like big solid linebackers. I'm thinking like Rocky Boyman, like from the 2000 Oklahoma defense, like he really wanted those 250 pound guys that were rock solid that could play downhill. Well, uh, Clemson's got a lot of, like, Isaiah Simmons types, hybrid type guys right now. And so what they did, they put 10 pounds on Trenton Simpson. And now after being a Sam linebacker, he's going to the weak side at 240 pounds, which should be a nightmare for people. And Barrett Carter, who's a former five-star, is going to be the starter in that nickel Sam role. Just unbelievable athleticism, lights out, cat-like quickness, longer probably than he looks. Um, because he plays with such instinctiveness. And then they got Jeremiah Trotter Jr., whose dad was a heck of a middle linebacker who's going to be playing in the middle, probably at will linebacker. They've got some older guys in there as well. It's going to be a leaner group, but a much more athletic group at linebacker. And then defensive backfield, Andrew McCuba's a star. You're going to see him everywhere. Not quite Isaiah Simmons, but maybe an Isaiah Simmons light. I had somebody, um, I'd, I had a guest on radio a few days ago that, compared him to all-time Clemson great defensive back Terry Kennard, which is just an unbelievable comparison. Um, Makuba is a sophomore, probably going to play some nickel. He played corner because of some injuries in the spring, and he's best at safety. Um, and then at cornerback, you lost two NFL guys, and all you do is you bring in some freshmen on a conveyor belt. You got a five-star in Fred Davis. You've got guys who are, who are ready to take the next step, an older guy in Sheridan Jones. Uh, the best of the bunch in terms of ability is Nate Wiggins. He basically told us he didn't care beans about class or study hall last year, which that may be his last interview for a while, admitting all that to us. But he told us that the other day in a press conference, I've got Wiggins as preseason all ACC because people continue to rave about him. Point is, even when they lose guys, there's enough depth and talent and development there, not just up front, but across the board, where I think Clemson defensively will be fine. And then, oh, by the way, if Goodwin is continuing to innovate and dial it up the way he did against Iowa State and the way he helped Brent Venables as his right-hand man, um, and really he, uh, he helped Kevin Steele before that. Uh, since Dabo got to Clemson, Wes Goodwin came as a GA uh, back in 2009 with Woody McCorvey, who's still on staff on an off-field role. So um, a lot of things to love about Clemson's defense, not just those frontline guys, but I think they've got options behind them. Yeah, so pretty much loaded, got depth. Everything you, yeah. everything you need out of a good defense, they got. Um, questions are about the coordinator, but I mean, I think we've we've addressed 
those, right? And I think this is going to be a really, really talented unit on that side of the ball. Offensively is where I, I know a lot of the questions lie with this team, right? Um, let's start with DJU. Like, what what do you think was the biggest the biggest issue in terms of why he fell short of expectations last year? Like, what was the one single thing you could point to? I know there's a lot there. There's a lot there. A lot of meat on that bone in terms of how the offense performed and it wasn't all on DJU, like I mentioned earlier. But in terms of DJU and his development, what was the one big thing that held him back last year? And, you know, what's one thing for fans to look for when they're watching Clemson's offense this year as, as a means of improvement, a reason why they'll improve? You know, there's this um, there's this saying that uh, pressure turns coal into diamonds or something like that. I, I think the inverse is also true that pressure can squish you. And I, I think that's what happened to DJ last year. Um, if we're talking broad strokes, main issue, that's it. That he felt pressure, and because he felt pressure and he wasn't performing, he lost confidence. Now, to me, the biggest reason for that, if you're asking me to isolate one, was he played Georgia first of the year. He faced Darion Kendrick, a former teammate of his, was trying to throw into coverage that you could argue, especially as Clemson's offense got a little more predictable over time with Tony Elliott that Darion Kendrick maybe uh, had some insight into some calls and into some formations and some tendencies. And so Georgia, I think, was a particularly difficult starting point for Clemson offensively. DJ as the guy. Think about this. And this, this goes beyond um, just DJ. There were three prominent quarterbacks last year that were sort of ahead of the curve when it came to national endorsement deals with well-known companies in name, image, and likeness. Sam Howell, DJ Uyunglele, Spencer Rattler. What do all three of those guys have in common? They flopped. For one reason or another, they flopped. Rattler gets benched. He, he's unsure of himself. You know, Rattler's numbers aren't that bad, but you watch him in games, the guy appeared scared of his own shadow. He just had no idea what he was doing. He seemed like he was seeing ghosts all the time. Howell obviously uh, had a rough year for North Carolina for a lot of reason, and DJ. I think being the NIL guinea pigs was difficult too. And so you throw that in the mix. You throw in, uh, now there's a lot of expectations. I've got Heisman hype. I'm, I'm one, of the, uh, one of the favorites in terms of the Vegas odds to win the thing. That I think heaps some pressure on him. Um, his parents went through a divorce last year that ended up being fairly public. And, and uh, during the season, you started hearing more and more come out about that and how it was impacting DJ, who has a really good relationship with his mom, who was in California, maybe a little better than his dad, who was here. Um, that, you know, that's, that was very difficult. Um, that created some issues, I think, um, not just with DJ, but in the confines of the team. And then uh, you also look at it, you know, he ballooned to 260 pounds, maybe didn't take care of himself quite like he wanted. He's not a natural leader like Trevor Lawrence. And so some of the things that made Trevor Lawrence and Deshaun Watson and Kelly Bryant, great leaders and great quarterbacks, you know, they were, uh, very much about staying late. They were very much about building relationships off the field. They're very much about, you know, taking ownership of that and being proactive in that. That's not really DJ's bent. DJ is more of an in the shadows guy. And so it's easy to be in the shadows when Trevor Lawrence is the guy and you get to start for a couple games, like we saw at Boston College and Notre Dame. It's very different when Trevor leaves and they go, all right, man, it's your team now. And you're not really naturally cut out for that. So you're kind of guessing along the way, I think there was poor leadership in just about every single position group last year. The oldest running back in the group, Lynn J. Dixon, is now a two-time transfer within uh, nine calendar months. 
wide receiver. You really didn't have any, you know, the onus was on the wide receivers to perform to me, even more so than quarterback. That was the most disappointing group last year. There was poor effort, poor fundamentals, no yards after catch. They didn't block worth the dog gone. Like you, that you can go through it. Offensive line. I talked about Marcus Tate. You're putting little babies out there. You know, the first game against Georgia that don't even know if they can hold up. Even this year, you don't really have a right guard, but you've got a better center situation. You've just not been able to develop a center. I mean, like the issues around DJ were were sort of compounding all the issues that he was having internally with self-doubt and with some of the pressure that was put on him. So I think all of that stuff, you know, you, you got to say it because it's hard to it's hard when nothing's going right, especially when things are are going poorly off the field. Your, your respite is on the field. You want to go to practice. You want to be with your teammates. You want to do that. But when that's not a safe haven for you, that can be a lonely and that can be a bitter. That can be a horrible place to be. And so I, I felt really bad for DJ last year in that regard. A lot of that stuff, either he, he's moved past or has been normalized or has been dealt with in some way. He's better with his footwork. He's 20, 25, 30 pounds lighter, depending on the day and depending on who you talk to about his weight. He did. Uh, he and the receivers both took more of a proactive approach to uh, getting with each other and staying late after practice and, and getting some throws in and those kinds of things. So I think we'll see better chemistry on the field this year. And then there's better leadership around him too with Jordan McFadden. Will Shipley is a natural leader in the backfield. I think that's going to help a lot. Will Putnam's ability to slide over to center you know, they moved Matt Bockhorst last year, and, and he was your best guard, and, and really uh, it just weakened the entire interior of your offensive line. So, you know, moving him back, um, you know, that was kind of a mess. That's a little more solid this year in front of him. And, oh, by the way, you start with Georgia Tech, Furman, Louisiana Tech, Wake Forest without Sam Hartman and with a defense that you torched last year. And so you got four games in September before you face a stiff test in NC State to work out some kinks where last year you had no games to work out kinks because you started with Georgia. So I think all that really, um, really compounded and DJ having a bad year. Well, Shipley, obviously really good in the backfield. They got, you know, running backs, I think will be fine. Offensive line, you know, also you're returning, you know, a lot of talent there, a lot of production. Wide receiver. Um, that's the last thing I want to kind of touch on before we get into the schedule. Wide receiver. We're used to seeing Clemson run like, guys out there who we know are going to be like bona fide first round picks. Josephine got a returns, right? And he's been productive over his time at Clemson. Um, obviously Spectre's back. That That's good. You know, there's production there. What should Clemson fans, what should the broader college football community know about the current stable of wide receivers at Clemson? Like, I, I feel like there's still talent there, but maybe not like the top end talent that we've seen historically. You know, it's interesting. Last year, I said so much stuff went wrong. It can't possibly happen again. To me, there were a lot of growing pains in different ways last year that that every program has to go through. They just don't go through it with everybody all at once. That's what happened with Clemson's wide receivers last year. Joseph Ngata is the best player snap for snap in Clemson's receiving core. He's a first round pick. Uh, he was a five star out of California and he looks the part. Problem is he can't stay healthy. And we've heard Tyler Grisham talk about how, you know, he's, he's been after guys to really take care of their bodies. And again, we're talking about being proactive, to be proactive in the offseason so that you can get back from little nagging things. And you could tell that the nagging injuries to him, to EJ Williams, and to some other guys in the receiving court, Justin Ross a little bit last year, 
that it got annoying. And some of that stuff was avoidable and some of it wasn't. And it's hard to parse out what was and wasn't. But you could tell sometimes that the coaches and Dabo in particular just were annoyed by the fact that they didn't have wide receivers available. And God is a stud. He's already been in a yellow jersey at practice. Uh, we, you know, it's been not even a week for practice and he's already out in yellow. The good news is apparently he made an exceptional play and landed on his head. And I think he's supposed to be out of yellow very soon, if not today. Uh, we're recording this on uh, Thursday, August 11th. So, um, you know, hopefully soon for him. EJ Williams didn't catch 10 passes last year because of a host of issues. I think I say issues because injuries was one. I think a lack of dedication was another. And um, now he, who went to the same high school as Justin Ross and has been in Ross's shadow a little bit, now he can emerge from Ross's shadow. I'm actually really excited for him. Bo Collins was a former teammate of DJ's at uh, uh, um, uh, Bosco in California. And so he's been catching passes from DJ all his life, basically. Uh, so he's going to have a good year. Spectre had COVID, long COVID, had major issues, um, respiratory issues, et cetera. Didn't see him last year. Will Taylor, the, the uh, first round uh, baseball pick, tore his knee up last year in the middle of the season. Barely got to see him. Um, they really like Antonio Williams, a young guy in the slot from Dutch Fork High School here in South Carolina. Another South Carolina kid from down on the coast, Adam Randall, who's 6'3", 215 pounds, hurt himself in the spring, I think in ACL, and he's on track to be back in September. That tells you a lot about him and the way that he's progressed. He actually clocked over 20 miles an hour with a knee brace on during drills the other day where he's doing some straight line stuff. So he might be the best of the bunch. And we even got to Dakari Collins, who separated himself as the best blocking receiver that I've seen at Clemson since Sharon Peak, a guy who brought some physicality to a group that, quite frankly, um, to borrow a line uh, from Remember the Titans, didn't block worth a plug nickel, and we all knew it. Uh, that, I mean, they, they did not block for each other. There were guys that were, uh, th that were more likely to be seen standing and spinning around and watching their guy hit a fellow receiver for a tackle for loss than ever touching anybody in the screen game. So from the wide receiver standpoint, you're going to be better this year because all those guys had issues last year. And it's just a matter of keeping, you know, 50% of your guys healthy. If you got 50% of your guys healthy and productive, they're going to have a good year because those guys, I think, all learned some really tough lessons at the same time that most programs are able to segment into a three or four year period. Certainly still talent. It's just a matter of, you know, not having the proof, I guess the proven talent, right. Um, on the field. I mean, you hit the nail on the head with Ngata and the injuries. I mean, I think everybody expected more in terms of production, but I think it would have been there if he's been able to stay healthy. So I, it's a it's a talented unit. Um, I think Clemson's offense will definitely take a step forward this year. And because of that, I think Clemson will be pretty good. Just want to take a look at this schedule. Like you mentioned, September is going to be pretty kind to them um, up until that Wake Forest road game. And now with the news about Sam Hartman um, and his whatever's going on with his arm, non-football injury standpoint, he had some sort of procedure done to his non-throwing arm. Something's going on there. He's going to miss some time. There's, it's not really clear when he's going to be back, even though Dave Blossom said he'll be back this year. I'm not sure we'll see him in September. That changes things drastically with that Wake Forest game. But even so, last year was one of the most talented Wake Forest teams we've seen. Clemson was able to handle them because from an athlete standpoint, Wake Forest just simply doesn't have the depth that Clemson has, right? Even with Clemson's worst team in the decade. So really this schedule boils down to two games for me. It's, 
now, especially with, with the Wake Forest injuries with Hartman, it boils down to two games now. NC State the following week after Wake Forest and Notre Dame on the road. Notre Dame doesn't even factor to the ACC picture, but if we're talking Clemson in a playoff standpoint, we got to circle that Notre Dame game on the road um, later in the year. So I, this feels like an 11 and one type to me, an 11 and one type Clemson team at worst. I would be surprised to see them lose two games on the schedule, especially now that Hartman's out of the picture. Maybe a split with NC State and Notre Dame could be in the cards. I think if that happens, you hope they lose the Notre Dame game, not the NC State game, because then you at least have a chance to still win the ACC. My feeling is that if they lose to NC State, NC State's probably winning the Atlantic. I, I would agree with that. Look, I, I'm, I, I know Dave Doran has talked about the mental block that NC State has had over Clemson, and we all said it, and he denied it until they actually beat Clemson, and he admitted what everyone knew, that NC State was snake bit against Clemson, you need go no further back than 2016 when Clemson won the national championship and NC State had a chance to kick a field goal that would have knocked Clemson out of the playoff because it would have been uh, it may you know maybe they beat uh, maybe they beat Pittsburgh that year but that that game against NC State was indicative of in the NC State jinx where NC State last year thoroughly dominated Clemson I would argue more than any team has thoroughly dominated Clemson outside the college football playoff in the last six years. Uh, seven years, let's say, since 2015. They converted 33rd downs. It felt like Clemson had spent half the game going three and out. And it took two overtimes for NC State to win because they missed three kicks. I'm not worried about NC State at home. Keep in mind, Clemson last year lost three games, neutral site Georgia, at Pittsburgh, at NC State. The only times they lose now are on the road, and the only times they lose are to ranked teams, basically. Um, you don't have slip-ups like 2017 at Syracuse anymore. Not – not in recent memory. Clemsoning, Clemsoning is done and has been done for half a decade. They, they haven't lost a home game since 2016, and that includes last year where they had the following things happen. Florida State, three-point game. They came from behind in the fourth quarter. Georgia Tech was 14-6 with Georgia Tech in a goal-to-go situation, couldn't score. Uh, Boston College got down inside the red zone, was eating Clemson alive, bad snap. So, like, I mean, I know this is my second biblical example, but a lot of times I say – that for Clemson, sometimes you just have to walk around Jericho seven times and let the walls crumble. Uh, that's essentially what Clemson does. They just show up, they get out there with their defense, and teams crumble, teams wilt, because they don't have any track record. I, I, would, I would agree about Hartman, that, but I, I think it moves Wake Forest to use like political prognostication terms from uh, likely Clemson to – uh, to uh, like sure thing Clemson or, or whatever the case. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, right. I agree. Wait, half a step wait. down, half a step behind. That's a good way yeah. for us team still a lot of talent on that offense. I agree. I was, I was, when, when the Hartman news broke yesterday, not to cut you off, but when the Hartman news broke yesterday, that was like my main takeaway. It's like everybody's saying, oh yeah, you know, pound the under on the Wake Forest win total. I'm not, in, I'm not in that boat. Like you just have to have a quarterback that doesn't turn the ball over. That offense is elite in terms of skill talent. I mean, that offense is very good, and, and yeah, to your point, I mean, it's not like Hartman was completing 68% of his passes. I mean, the guy's still under 60%. They're still going to do what they do. Now, the feel and, and all that stuff, I think, um, I think that makes him even more susceptible to Clemson, but Wake Forest has the longest active losing streak against Clemson in the ACC. They've lost 13 straight games. There's only been one time in Dabo Sweeney's tenure at Clemson that that game has even been remotely close, and it wasn't last year where they dialed up Wake Forest, and, and in a half, they basically ended the game. They played better against Wake than they did against anybody. Um, you know, Clemson last year, 
barely hung on for a goal line stand at Louisville. I mean, on and on, you can you can. I mean, Syracuse was a close game, uh, relatively speaking. Even though I never really thought Syracuse was going to win that game, so um, Clemson has an opportunity had an opportunity to lose a bunch of games last year, and they didn't because these teams have mental blocks against them. And oh, by the way, again, they have not lost a home game since 2016. And unlike last year, all of their big games are at home. NC State, Miami at the end, in the ACC, I mean. The one game on the road you talked about is Notre Dame. I think Clemson's better than Notre Dame. Um, I, it'll be interesting to see what happens there because, uh, you know, I think Notre Dame's got some growing up to do. I think there are a lot of folks who are are automatically vaulting Notre Dame into the playoff picture. I think they're doing to Notre Dame what they've done to North Carolina in the past. Recruiting. Yep. They do it's to all Texas. about recruiting. Recruiting guys for 23 and pretending they're going to play in 22. Yep, and Marcus exactly Freeman right. Marcus Freeman's coached one game. They had a million-point lead in halftime, and they blew it. I don't know. Look, I think Marcus Freeman's going to do, do a good job there. I think Brent Venable's going to do a good job at Oklahoma. I think these first-time head coaches are going to do great. First-time head coaches don't do great in year one, especially when they take over uh, brand-new programs for the first time. They've never been a head coach before. So I think that will factor in there, too. And that is exactly why I don't think Miami is going to be as good as everybody thinks they're going to be because everybody's looking at, once again, looking at the recruiting rankings, just thinking, oh, Mario Cristobal, he coached there before, or he, he he's a Miami alum, and he's going to come back, and all of a sudden he gets the culture, and everything's going to be resurrected in a day because they have Tyler Van Dyke and all this talent. That could be the case, but it's very rare that a first-time coach just steps in automatically or like 10-11 win team, um, a, a Miami team that was just okay last year, Right. And a lot of talent, but it's going to take some time, I think. You know, I will say this, that game being in November, that's a great close to the schedule, by the way. I, I don't remember a close to the schedule in recent memory better for Clemson fans than Louisville, Miami, South Carolina, all at home in November. I think that's going to be fantastic. Um, it, it very well could be a Coastal Division or a, uh, an ACC Championship preview when Miami comes. I, I think one thing that Mario Cristobal will do over time this year that will make that game a little bit interesting is that he will fix the lines of scrimmage, and I think that will happen over time. I don't think they're going to be great game three against Texas A&M, but barring injuries to Zion Nelson or some other really important pieces there, I think by the time they play Clemson, more than anybody else, maybe even including NC State, they should be able to stand up at the lines of scrimmage and compete against Clemson. Um, and again, I'm going to assume maybe some injuries on both sides there. And um, so I'm, I'm – if you're looking for a sleeper game um, where maybe Vegas is a little bit more bullish uh, and, and maybe rightfully so, I, I think that Miami game could get a little interesting, especially if Clemson's already wrapped up the Atlantic division. So what are we thinking in terms of, and, and by the way, who knows in November what Miami even looks like? Because to your, to your point, like the lines of scrimmage could be looking good. We could also see from Miami's standpoint, oh, um, it's just another one of those like seven, eight, one seasons and they're mailing it in. I would be surprised if Crystal Ball lets him mail it in, right? Because I think that's where he's going to separate himself in terms of past Miami coaches. But who knows what that's going to look like? And in terms of Clemson's run of injuries last year, to your point, you know, there could be injuries on both sides. Clemson's run of injuries last year. Who knows what that game's going to look like in November? In terms of record prediction, before we wrap up, what are you thinking looking at this schedule? Um, I mean, honestly, I, I thought they were a 12-0 team. I thought they were going to play for a championship last year. They end up winning nine in the regular season. And, again, they don't lose unless they're playing ranked teams on the road. Well, Wake Forest ain't going to be that necessarily. I don't think Boston College or Florida State is going to be that, although 
I could pinpoint those two games in particular uh, as troublesome because they're both coming on the heels of the um, of the Wake Forest NC State double dip, where those are the two at least coming into the year. Those are the two best teams in, in the division that are not you. Um, and then you've got at Notre Dame. To me, I, I'm 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 going to assume Clemson win all their home games. Uh, the couple swing games are perhaps NC State because they're the only team with a defense that can make an argument is better than Clemson. They have a better quarterback coming back, but they haven't been Clemson at home in a long, long time. It's been like 20 years since they've beaten Clemson at Memorial Stadium. So I'm going to say Clemson wins that game. And like I said, I think Notre Dame is just a little bit overrated. I I just, I don't like, I I don't like first time head coaches in a big, in a big spot like that. And Clemson's too talented. Um, So I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go Clemson there. I could see people saying they they drop one to the schedule because they do have some uh, tough spots there. But personally, I'm having a hard time figuring out where that is. So I think I I have no issues with them going 12 and 0 and then being surprised when you know everything goes wrong and they win 10 or you know something goes wrong in a moment where you have like you did in 2020. Trevor Lawrence all of a sudden doesn't play because of COVID. Obviously, that changes the math for you, but. Um, without knowing the injuries and when they pop up and where that is, I have a hard time picking any game as a loss. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go 11 and one. And like you said, I'm just going to say, okay, they're going to lose to somebody and I don't know who, but I will say this, like if Clemson goes 11 and one and they still win the Atlantic and win the ACC, because I don't think anybody in the coastal can beat them for, for the record. Um, if they go, because I, by the way, I think they are going to be my, I think they will beat Miami, but they go 11 and one and they win the ACC. Are you, I mean, who's keeping them out of the playoff? Like, I, I, you know, you talk about Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama as, like, the three. Like, you've got to make an argument for, what, a third SEC team? Like, is anybody in the Pac-12? USC is early, by the way. We're talking about teams that are kind of a year or two early. USC is early, too. Everybody, that's I see that's a popular playoff pick. No idea why. That's early. Well, they um, got to beat Utah. And they got to beat mean, Utah. I, I mean, Utah's Utah is the best team in that division. And Great. I'm more worried about Utah as a fourth team in a playoff. I'll say this. I – I'm not so sure that Clemson is not the third best team in the country because Ohio State, this is brand new. I haven't even said this on air yet. Ohio State's defense is going to give up 50 like three times this year. Yeah. Um, they brought in great defensive coordinator. Love Jim Knowles. If you look at Jim Knowles' track record, year one at Duke and year one at Oklahoma State, his defense has got significantly worse. Ohio State's not just going to get better because they brought in Jim Knowles. That's not the way Jim Knowles works. That's not the way Brent Venables worked at Clemson. If you look at him, his first couple teams got annihilated a couple times on defense. I think it's going to be a couple years for Ohio State, and they're going to outscore almost everybody. But if they give up 50 in the wrong spot, I think they're more susceptible to a random loss than maybe even Clemson because Clemson's strength is defense, and we know that travels week to week a little better than offense does. Yeah, I'm with you. I guess if there's one team outside of like an ACC school that could make a run at the playoff, I, I think Utah's the pick. I don't. I agree. I've seen A&M. I've seen USC. I don't buy either one of those. A&M, I'm not sure has a quarterback, by the way. And USC, I think, is uh, North Carolina, Miami case of looking at the recruiting and being a year early, thinking like you mentioned, thinking the 23 guys are playing in 22. We do this every year with at least one or two teams. I think Miami and, and USC are those two teams this year. Um, so I'm going to go 11 and one. I'm going to say Clemson wins the ACC and makes the playoff. Um, I have Pittsburgh winning the coastal because I still think they got a lot of talent. Even you lose Addison, you lose Pickett, and it's you know, I get there's 
you know, there, there's a lot of questions with Pitt, but there's also a lot of talent returning too, specifically up front defensively. And I think that's going to be a team in the Coastal that'll be pretty good. So I got Clemson 11 and one win the ACC again, back to the playoff. I think all is well. I think everybody's overreacting to the demise of Clemson. Um, by the way, I'm not sure if my co-host feels the same way. I, I got to get Joey's take on that. Cause I know Joey's been a little bit worried about Dabo, a little bit worried about Clemson, but I don't know if he's worried about him in, in the context of this year, but I, I will say narratives will change a lot if they, you know, get back to the playoff and get back to doing what they do. I well, agree. And look, oh, I'll ahead, say this. I know I'm your most long-winded guest, so I'll keep oh, this no, short Oh, no, you're, you're not, actually. I, I will. Okay. <laughs> actually I'll, uh, I'll keep this short and sweet. I think for Clemson to get really back where it needs to be, and look, this is more of a big-picture take. We're talking 10, 15 years down the road. For Clemson to get back, they need some other teams to pull their weight. You know, there's five teams in the preseason top 25 without Sam Hartman. I think Wake Forest falls by the wayside. So you've got three other teams. Those teams cannot afford to crash and burn. Miami needs to be good. Pittsburgh, I, I have issues with the combination of quarterback, receiver, coordinator, all gone. I think that's going to really um, – so that's why I'm taking Miami, just because I'm not sure I can trust that. The ability to replenish that that's for Narduzzi, who I'm a big fan of. But I, I certainly say uh, Miami and Pittsburgh are two teams that deserve to be ranked at this point. NC State and maybe somebody else. This league needs to be better respected – um, and for Clemson fans, that means getting other teams besides Clemson in the top 25 in New Year's Six conversation, but not beating Clemson so they continue to go to playoffs and continue to do what they do. So I, I do think this is a big year for the ACC, and it's a big year for Clemson. I think those things go hand-in-hand hand in a lot of ways. Well, man, this was thorough. It's, it's like this is why we have you on to cover Clemson because Joey and I can – Joey and I know what we know. But in far, as far as the ins and outs of the program, this is why we have you on. Um, Will Qualkenbush, 105.5 The Roar. Uh, you, you do Clemson play-by-play for Clemson Network. Anything anything else I'm missing there? Uh, no, that's good. And uh, I'm glad. I'm going to put on my bio, most thorough uh, podcast guest. Yes. I like that. That's a very nice way to say, shut your mouth, you professional <laughs> talker. I'm trying to rap because my baby's crying and my wife's having a cow back there. So, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you letting me be thorough, Mike. <laughs> I, uh, I will not dispute that. I will not dispute that. <laughs> we'll, we'll appreciate it, man. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Mike. Always good to be with you.